Welcome back to our Weird History episode, where we seek to bring you tales of the strange and unusual throughout history. What's this week about? I still don't know. Of course. I don't know why I said still. I don't know. You never do know. I know. That's why I said, of course. I don't know why I said that. (laughs) We are continuing our eccentric episodes, or I guess eccentric series at the moment. So if if everyone remembers last weird history, it was eccentric English preachers. Hope you had fun with that because that was crazy (laughs) fun. (laughs) That was fun. Well, I told you specifically you that I would have someone on this list, which reminds me of you. And it's sort of like the spirit animal of all super introverts. We are talking about, instead of eccentric English preachers, we're talking about eccentric English lords. You know, this is going to be insane because these people have money. Oh, they were also really weird. Oh, you have no idea. I want to get into that. I I just touched a surface when I did my studies on it. So on on English Lords. Yeah, I barely grazed a surface and I'm sure I don't know half of what you're going to talk about. I'm so excited. Let's start. Let's start. Let's start. I want to know. I want to (laughs) know. Well, unlike last list, which I specifically ordered so that things were kind of getting crazier and crazier. They really do that with this one just because they're all crazy. So it's sort of a a mix. But I've got more on this list than just the five or so I'm going to talk about. So just like the last one. If you like listening to this one, let me know. I'll make another one. So first on our list is a man who went by Sir Tatton Sykes. And he was born March 13th of 1826. And into the very incredibly wealthy Tatton Sykes Baronas. He was a baron. I can't not pronounce that word. I don't know how to pronounce it. Anywho, when his father, the fourth baronet, died in 1863, obviously he became the fifth. So if you look it up, most of the time, if you look up Sir Tatton Sykes, you'll find a horse because they were major horse breeders. And that was the name of one of the horses that they raced. The fourth baron was majorly into horse racing and you'll find information about the sixth baron they were all into horse racing but the fifth one is the one we're going to talk about today specifically and i think he was probably a bit eccentric even prior to becoming a baronet but the wealth and very lavish lifestyle once he became the fifth baronet made him even more eccentric as soon as he moved into his ancestral home he immediately told all the servants to destroy and remove any and all flowers from the entire estate. Why? He detested flowers, called them nasty, untidy things. But this destruction of flowers didn't just extend to his own property, though. His home, Sledmore, was also the owner of more or less the local village. So he ordered that any and all flowers in the village also be removed. And if he saw any flowers, he would step off the road and stomp them to death. That seems excessive. He really hated flowers. I cannot figure out as to why. Sounds like a nut job. 
well, that that's a a phrase you might be using through the, this entire episode. Story goes with that is that the only flower he allowed within the village and on his own estate was cauliflower. <laughs> now it also seemed he had an aversion to front doors. Apparently, I found this as doing my research. So not only having the ones on the Sledmore estate re removed from all buildings on the estate, but also required that all the people in the village also remove their front doors, replacing them with a trompe de l'or, which is um, instead of a front door, it's like an it's it's a like a canvas oil. It's an oil painting. That's kind of sometimes used, like if you were to put a tapestry in a doorway and call it a door. Kind of like that, but not quite. But apparently the only doors he approved of were rear exit doors, but no one could have front doors. Now, the most eccentric thing he's probably remembered for is his clothing choices. At some point, Sir Tatton Sykes, the fifth baronet, came to believe that he had to maintain a very specific core temperature. Not something that he was told by his doctors, something he decided on his own. And in order to do this, in all seasons, he would wear multiple layers of clothing. Ugh. Yes. If he decided that he was too warm and his core temperature was too high, he would, I mean, remove a layer of garments sure but then he would also just toss them on the floor no matter where he was he would just take off his jacket his his cravat whatever and just drop it and expect his servants who trailed behind him consistently picking up these garments um one i'm already hot thinking about how many garments this weird person wore two what a waste. Well, I didn't say he wouldn't get the garments back. So much water and laundry. Presuming he washed the clothes. Well, or had someone wash the clothes. I really hope so, because P.U. Well, it is England. It doesn't normally get quite that hot. And this is the 1850s. 1860s yeah but i can just imagine the humidity in the summers yes but how humid does england get as opposed to florida england's a bit more temperate and and uh well at least back then it was at the moment they're going through a big heat wave yeah i was gonna say that may be true but it's also like it's just hot yes yeah well, apparently, if he was out and about in town and dropped a piece of clothing and one of the children in the town happened to come across it and returned it, he would also pay them one shilling for the return of his clothing. Now, according to one story, again, he's wearing multiple layers of clothing. He would also wear multiple layers of trousers, at least two, if not more. And if he got too warm, no matter where he was, if he was in front of a crowd of people or in a full drawing room for, full of friends, he would remove his trousers, one trouser over the other trouser, to the shock and horror of other people because you don't just remove your pants no matter how many layers you're wearing. 
Now, as he got older, he also became increasingly paranoid, which is also kind of a theme with this episode. And his habits became even more crazy. There was a point in his later years where he decided he was going to have a very strict regimen of food consisting of one item. Which was funny because I was kind of actually eating a snack version of this item about two days before I did this research. Not knowing that it was going to pop up. It's a delicious little snack that you could find in any grocery store. That could be chips. Uh, they have chips back then. Hmm. I don't think crisps were a thing just yet. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, is it a piece of fruit? That's what I would have as a snack. No, it's a delicious treat that you have to take time to make. Oh, is it a cookie? No, but it is a sweet. Piece of cake? Closer. Chocolate? Oh, wait, you don't like chocolate. Never mind. You wouldn't be snacking on it. No. Whenever you're ready. Cupcake? You're in the realm of sweets, but it's not exactly a solid. Oh, is it a drink? Like, no, it's food, but it's not. It's a liquid food. That's sweet. Ice cream? No, they didn't have ice cream back then. Well, kind of, but not the ice cream that we think of today. Yeah. Why don't you just tell me? Okay, given. Rice pudding. Oh, rice pudding is delicious. Rice pudding is delicious. Oh, rice pudding existed back then. But maybe if a different thing, just like ice cream is kind of different. But... This, that did you but if you paid attention to what I said before the rice pudding is that he would only eat rice pudding it was his only food at a certain point in his life in his later years refused to eat anything but rice pudding sounds like there was zero nourishment in his diet and it got even better than that so at one point Sledmore caught fire probably something in the kitchen and whilst the fire was raging through the estate and the servants were running around panicking, he's in his uh, study. He's in, there, he's in there somewhere having his daily bowl of rice pudding. And he was always incredibly adamant that he must have his rice pudding. And everyone's panicking. The house is on fire. And he's just sitting down eating his bowl of rice pudding fully aware of what's going on and his servants come and say sir you you need to evacuate my lord you need to evacuate the buildings on fire and he replied i must eat my rice pudding and he sat there finished his rice pudding and then left the burning building then apparently according to reports sat in a lawn chair facing the burning building and sat there until it completely burnt to the ground so he sat there and watched the building that he ate his rice pudding and burned to the ground through pure enjoyment or something? Well, or he deemed that there was, it got to a point that there was nothing you could do and might as well just watch it burn because it probably had enough money to rebuild it anyway. But that also wasn't the only thing. He would occasionally sort of travel around the world as one would do if you had the money for it. And going back to the rice pudding, no matter where he went, no matter the country, no matter what was available, he always insisted on having his rice pudding. Sounds like a whack job. Again, that's a theme. 
So that is Sir Tatton Sykes, Fitzwick Baronet. And we move on to one of my absolute favorites, Mad Jack Mitten, or um, John Mitten usually referred to as Mad Jack. And you know, if somebody's called bad, let alone Mad Jack, there's a good reason for it. And of course, he would be your favorite. Oh, I didn't say he was my absolute favorite on this list. I said he's one of my favorites on this list. But certainly is one of the most eccentric on this list. And that is for sure. And he was born into an incredibly wealthy family uh, in 1796 in Shropshire. And as a child, he proved to be very unruly, frequently getting kicked out of several boarding schools. So his parents decided to have him homeschooled with private tutors. And apparently he also managed to scare them away as well. So he did not seem like he was interested in school and learning. Now, eventually, despite his apparent disinterest in learning and studying, he would actually secure a place in Cambridge eventually. And when he left to go attend university, it is said that he took with him 2,000 bottles of port which is a delicious dessert wine. Even 200 bottles sounds like a lot. I don't know if the article meant 200 and wrote 2,000 or the report generally just said he, he took 2,000 bottles of port. That's a lot of port. That's a lot That's of port. so much wine. Well, I mean, it's delicious. But yes, that is a lot of wine. That's a ship's full of wine. I don't disagree that it's delicious, but dang, is that a lot. Yeah. Well, he's probably about 15 to 17 at this point in his life, too. When asked why he needed this much wine, he said his aim was to be consuming it at all times while he's at university. Mad Jack would very quickly also drop out of university. Now, after dropping out, he decided he's going to go on the European Grand Tour, which, what was the episode? Pompeii. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yes. Where the uber rich could go travel around the Mediterranean and the Middle East and Egypt. And eventually, when he's done with his grand tour, he returned home and did his uh, nobility type duty and signed up for the British Army, which is also a theme in this episode. Apparently, much like school, he only lasted a year when he was dismissed due to his frequent gambling and drinking. By the time he was about to turn 21, he decided to finally just go home to his estate in Shropshire and wait for his inheritance to kick in because he didn't have anything else he felt like doing. Lazy. Yeah. Well, apparently while he was trying, waiting around for his inheritance to kick in, which came in at the age of 21, he's about... 1920 at this point he decided i'm a little bored let me try my hand at politics school wasn't for me but maybe i'll get into politics because i can buy my way in at this point and he did briefly have a stint as a member of the conservative party in parliament a position he very much bribed his way into do into getting but he didn't last long in that either Again, not surprised. It doesn't seem like he has concentration to last anywhere. Yeah. I, I would very much agree with that. 
that once he gained his full inheritance at the age of 21, he, being a very unruly, can't tie me down kind of a child in person, decided that he was going to choose to spend as much of his money as lavishly as possible. Though, nowhere near as lavishly as possible, I believe the next person on our list, but we'll get into him in just a couple minutes. You'll love the next one. His only focus, again, much like I think most of the people on this list, his only focus was to spend as much money as possible and have as much fun as possible. And he would be seen going through his estate, his very, very large estate, riding his favorite horses into the estate. And by that, I don't mean on the grounds. We're talking into dining halls, riding his horses into the hotels within the area as well, too. No matter the season, he would go horseback riding. And if he wasn't already considered to be kind of crazy enough, locals said that they would occasionally see him in the middle of winter, stark naked, riding his horse. Because he felt like riding it naked for fun in the middle of winter. Well, low expectations, I guess. <laughs> well, as I mentioned, he had a gambling and drinking problem, and he wanted to spend as much money as possible. So, obviously, he had a problem holding on to money, as also on occasion, he would meet random strangers and just give them thousands of pounds of money what yep probably met them at a bar but uh, it didn't specify how many times or what kind of situation this would have been it just said in the article that he had a habit of sometimes meeting random strangers and giving them thousands of pounds okay. because you got it you, i mean if you if, if it's if it if it means nothing to you, might as well give it away, I suppose. Now, there's even a tale and a caricature, which will pop up on the uh, Instagram feed for this for sure, of him at a very wild party that he was giving. Now, that's not the craziest part about the party, because if he's not already reckless enough, he brought a bear to the party. Now, mind you, this is me the 1820s and bear baiting was rather a big thing and and in russia it wasn't uncommon to have to like wrestle with bears and stuff and i believe lord byron had a thing with bears at one point something about wrestling a bear but i maybe think of somebody else oscar wilde took a bear to college so bears in england were kind of a thing even though i don't think bears are native to england but I could be wrong on that. I have no idea, but the bear was live. The bear was alive. It was a live, probably untamed, unless it was maybe he borrowed it from the circus. I don't know, or from the zoo. But he somehow acquired a mature, live, wild bear and brought it to his party. Now, if that wasn't already crazy enough, in my opinion, the most impressive thing that he tried to do at this party, which obviously uh, must have been incredibly drunk in order to even think that this was going to go okay. He tried to, in front of the horror of the guests at the party, tried to ride the bear. What? Yeah, he tried. He, there's a caricature of him 
like Putin on a bear riding a bear. I don't know if he was That's successful so in apparently in, in boarding onto the bear and riding it like a horse. I don't know how that ended up. There was no after accounts. Now, in just over 10 years of very wild and reckless behavior, Mad Jack was obviously completely broke. Now, fearing that his debtors would come for him, he decided he was going to flee England and go to France. But he wasn't alone on this adventure. Apparently, he managed to talk a random woman that he had met at one point while on Westminster Bridge to accompany him to Calais. Okay, still strange and weird and peculiar as before. Okay. Yep, yep. So, yeah, the two of them popped off to Calais. I don't know. I couldn't find who this lady was or how long they were together, but they popped off to Calais and he spent three years in France on the run from English debtors. And during this time, he apparently seemed to have not done much of anything of note. Or at least nothing that really made headlines. Now, there is one story, though, and I don't know if this is true. And I kind of hope it's not. But there is one story that one night while he's in France, he gets the hiccups. And there's a lot of different remedies for trying to cure hiccups. Sugar does actually work. But uh, Mad Jack decided he was going to try a much more unconventional approach i don't think you're going to get this so i might as well just tell you i'm scared you should be scared he set himself on fire oh 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 don't know if that was an accident or intentional the article didn't say but it did say at one point while he's still in france he gets the hiccups and set himself on fire I don't know if that actually stopped the hiccups. Oh, it stopped them. Well, technically, there is always that um, wives' tale that you can scare the hiccups away. I'd rather try that than light myself on fire. Well, I have a feeling that he may have not necessarily intended to light himself on fire and then did it by accident and maybe then also scared the hiccups away. Now, eventually, Mad Jack Mitten got himself absolutely broke like to the point of penniless literally broke and decided that now would be a good time to return to england and having no way to pay off his very immense debts he was put into debtor's prison where he died from alcohol poisoning in 1834 not surprised the next one on my list probably might be my favorite one of this entire list because he reminds me of a couple extra people uh, a, a couple of people from the history that may spring into mind with uh, with you as we go along. One of them might not, but I know we plan on doing an episode on him. Uh, so stay tuned for that one. Next on our list. Okay, so much like Mad Jack, this next Lord lived his life to the absolute fullest as possible. And with as much money of his uh, from his family's inheritance as possible. So next we are co covering the very fabulous Henry Searle Paget, fifth Marquess of Anglesey. Now, in some ways, Henry Searle Paget 
reminds me of a bit of Oscar Wilde. And you might, for Lauren, who is a fan, you, you'll, you'll see why as I go through. He was born in 1875 and was the eldest son of the fourth, Earl, or fourth Marquess of Anglesey, which is a small island off the coast of Wales. Yay, Wales. And in his early life and adolescence, it was pretty standard, particularly as the eldest son of a lord. He had prestigious schooling. He went to school at Eton, properly raised, and entered the army after graduation. Typical things a noble child would do. And at the age of 23, in 1898, he married his first cousin, Lillian Chetwind, who was also quite wealthy. Now, not even a year into his marriage, I think about nine or 10 months after they got married, Henry's father died, leaving him the entire estate and all the money. And boy, did he get a lot of money. And I've got stats. I've never heard of this amount of money. This is insane. His home estate, not the income from all the estates, just his one home estate on Anglesey at the time when he inherited it was worth about 535,000 pounds, which equates to about $60 million today just for his childhood home. Holy McMoley. I'm not done. There's more? Oh, there's more. No, no, that was just the estimation on the cost of his estate and Anglesey. The family owned other estates. They had an income. The income from the other estates were estimated to be around 120,000 pounds in 1898, 1899, worth about $13 million as of 2020 in terms of conversion and inflation. So by the time Henry Cyril Paget, fifth Marquess of Anglesey, inherited his fortune, it would have, in today's money, be worth close to $75 million. I don't like him. You will. You will like him. I like him. Well, that is, like, it's an unfathomable amount of money. That's, that's just crazy to me. Not surprisingly, like not only the last person we talked about, but like many very rich people who come into a lot of money, he wanted to spend it. And spend it, he did. And first, he started to spend it on very lavish clothing and jewelry. No surprise there. He would have been seen in very expensive furs and various studded necklaces. There are pictures. They're really pretty. For Henry, though, the style wasn't enough. He also wanted substance to go along with it. He loved being the center of attention. He wasn't the only child, but he was the eldest child. Doesn't surprise me. And with his millions and millions of pounds, at least in today's money, would be, he took to the theater. I'm a theater kid. I like this guy. But not just any theater. He built his own theater. He also set up his own traveling theater company called the Gaiety Theater Company. And every play the theater company put on, he took the star role. And he even, his own theater that he built, 
was actually the family chapel, which he then turned into a 150-seat theater. Every play the troupe performed was for anyone in the area that wanted to come and watch it, and it was free for anyone that wanted to come and watch it. That alone reminds me of Gilles de Ray, whom I believe will be coming up possibly in October. One of my favorite crazy eccentric people from French history and possibly a serial killer to give Elizabeth Bathory a run for her money. Although I think, so if, if you're not familiar with the name Gilles Array, I would say to an extent, given the legend of Elizabeth Bathory, because we don't know that she actually killed people or at least nowhere near to the extent that they claim she did, same with Gilles Array, I would put Gilles Array somewhere between Elizabeth Bathory and Marquis de Sade. And I really mean that. Listening to that story will be, or researching them, will be quite interesting if you're putting them right in between those two whack jobs. <laughs> it certainly will not be for the faint of heart, I will put it that way. But we're not talking about Gilles de Ray. But Gilles de Ray, as we all mentioned in a later episode, had a ton of money loved the theater and loved creating costumes for the theater which is why i, I brought him up for henry Steele paget paget would also spend lavishly on the theater costumes now according to writer and this isn't welsh so or at least i'm assuming it's a welsh name and i'm probably gonna butcher it um cyril davies um s-e-i-r-i-o-l i don't know if it's i don't know if it's cyril but Davis wrote in his book about Paget, he didn't understand the concept of costume jewelry. He thought it all had to be real. According to Davis, every costume would cost millions of pounds in today's money, all adorned with real pearls and real stones. He goes on to say in his book, the costume for Aladdin, which is estimated to be worth around $1 million today, were it still around, was worth more than the house in Anglesey. And it was just left hanging in the dressing room after a play one night when someone decided they were going to nick it. Paget ordered another one to be made. He spent, say, we'll call it a million dollars. He created a costume probably for, for the story of Aladdin, for the starring costume that he would wear, full of gemstones and pearls, probably made of silks and a whole bunch of anything else he decided to put on it. And the costume was a million dollars in today's money and just left hanging in his dressing room. Someone stole it. And instead of trying to figure out who stole it, he just ordered another one to be made. Wow. Let's be excessive. Because he's really irresponsible with his money. Davis also continues to write about Paget in his book. He bought a car that also converted the exhaust fumes to rose-scented perfume. He had a fleet of poodles and other dogs. And he made a ping-pong jacket. And he wanted it to be green. But instead of using just green silk, he made the entire thing out of real emeralds let's be over the top again okay while i'm talking go online 
and look up a picture of Henry Cyril Paget. Now, it seemed that Paget also had a big love of cars. And this is the turn of the century. Cars were incredibly expensive and hard to come by. Unless you were super rich. And he could be seen driving them around very recklessly. And earning him, at one point, the equivalent of a 500-pound speeding ticket. He also apparently liked to deck out his cars and as much eccentricity and, and, and just and he just was really lavish with decorating his cars. One of his many cars was apparently modeled on a train carriage with revolving armchairs, tables, cabinets, and solid silver fittings. The car alone, according to an estimation, would be worth around 270,000 pounds today. It's too much gosh darn money. <laughs> yeah. Now, due to his very obviously excessive spending and the rumors that he might be gay, though they're kind of unsubstantiated, his wife filed for divorce in 1900. They were married for about three years. Her reasoning was, that they had not consummated the wedding or the marriage and they've been married close to three years the annulment was very soon though withdrawn by henry's mother probably fearing a scandal and lillian and henry would remain separated although she would be with him when he died in 1901 his french valet was imprisoned for stealing jewels from paget and today the amount of jewelry would probably be worth in the realm of about $2 million. In 1902, a detective who dressed up as Paget and infiltrated a gang arrested said gang in Paris who were trying to steal some of that said stolen jewelry from the French ballet. One of them, one just one of the pieces of jewelry was a pear-shaped pearl estimated today to be just over $1 million. So half the allotted money that was stolen, one piece would be about half that, $1 million, just for a pearl. Obviously, with all this unabashed and unchecked spending, Paget very soon, very, very soon, completely ran out of money, all of it. So if the last, okay, so it's like through his entire inheritance, and about 10 years, and probably didn't have close to the amount of money that Paget has. Would you like to take a guess as how quickly Henry Cyril Paget ran through his inheritance? Within five years. Yes, within five years. He blew more or less close to the amount of $75 million in five years. In 1904, he filed for bankruptcy and bankruptcy. Well, I guess in 1903, he filed for bankruptcy. And 1904, proceedings began, and his estimated debts were to be around $60 million in debt. That's a lot of money to have spent and then put yourself into an extreme amount of debt. Well, there's no way you're paying that back. No, no, no. You, no, absolutely not. Trustees during the bankruptcy proceedings were appointed specifically to appraise and oversee the auctioning of all of his collections that he had amassed in just 
five years. One day of the several days long auction was just solely to sell his massive collection of dogs. Remember, I said he had a fleet of poodles. He had poodles and a whole variety of other dogs. Not specific as to how many, but a lot of dogs, especially if they're all going to go to auction. It's a lot of dogs. Another day, apparently, according to the article I got this from, says that 900 lots of silks and furs were sold another day during the auction. Must have been a really, really long day because 900 is a lot of lots. Yeah. Yeah. Incomprehensible, actually, sometimes. Yeah. And that's why I, I, I really like him because he's just super fabulous. But yeah, a lot of this is just completely incomprehensible. Great word for that. So after the bankruptcy proceedings and the auctioning and the loss of his money and inheritance, he decided he was going to move to France. His family decided that they were going to try to put a leash on him and granted him an annual sum of about 2,000 pounds in 1904-1905 with the equivalent of about $210,000 today per year. Not actually a lot of money. Well, no. I'm sorry. That's a lot of money. <laughs> what like, am my brain thinking? I'm like $20,000 is not a lot of money per year. 210,000 is a ton. I was going to say 20,000 is not a lot. 210,000. I, I read 210,000. My brain said 21,000. Yeah, that, that, that's a lot of money. So while he's in France, a French journalist actually asked him about his spending habits. And he told a reporter, in six years, I have run through that entire fortune. Just how? I couldn't tell you. Apparently, according to the same article, as part of some of the purchases, ongoing purchases he would make, he would run a tab. I guess it's not so much a subscription, but I guess it's the best word I can come up with. Okay, well, at least one year alone, he had spent $3,000 on just underwear throughout the whole year. That's a lot of money on underwear alone. Uh-huh. You know that they're probably French silk. Very expensive. And the following year in 1905, you see Paget. he's in Monte Carlo, where one newspaper reporter wrote that he had hopes of gambling, uh, or, or of being successful in gambling with the hopes of winning his inheritance back. It's in the work. Yeah, that's, I was going to say that's not going to happen. Well, it didn't happen. It also wouldn't have worked anyway. On March 14th of 1905, not too long after he was in Monte Carlo, Henry Cyril Pageant succumbed to tuberculosis and died at the age of 29. Very young. Yeah. Very, very young. 29 is not a long time to live life. No, but he had a life. At least he lived it as full as possible in the in his last, his, his mid to late 20s. True. After his death, now this is why most of the rumors about him are that he was homosexual. 
though there isn't anything substantial to say that he was or was not. And in around the same time that he got his inheritance and started spending lavishly, it was also around the same time that Oscar Wilde came out as gay and was... Was he sent to prison for being gay or was he just sort of dismissed from society? I can't remember. He did go to prison, I'm pretty sure, for being gay. I'm pretty gay. sure he did because, you know, being gay was a crime. Well, he also went through electroshock therapy for it, too. He went through a lot. Yeah. And none of it was him being at fault. He was just gay, which in that time was illegal. It was illegal for quite a long time. So, again... He may be gay, he may have been not gay, nothing substantial, but given what his family did after his death in particular, there have been ongoing speculation that he may have been gay, and what they did was possibly as a result of that. After he died, his family seemed to want to do anything and everything to remove him from memory. No one was around to greet his coffin when it arrived in Anglesey, from Par- well, from Monte Carlo, ahead of the funeral, at least. That same year, the family turned his beloved theater back into the family chapel. Any and all letters, diaries, and papers that they could find of his, they completely destroyed. Again, I'm not surprised. Well, we're about halfway through, and I told you there was somebody on this list that I threw in specifically for you. this is like the saint paint uh patron saint of super introverts and misanthropes so if anyone's listening and you're an introvert you might find inspiration in the guy on our next list william john cavendish the fifth duke of portland do you know who he is the name sounds familiar i just laughed at cavendish cavendish so not only was lord William John Cavendish, the fifth Duke of Portland, an introvert, he was very much a misanthrope. And he pretty much wanted to hide away from anyone and everyone, including his own servants. And this is more than the Victorian thing of servants use the back stairs because we don't want to actually see them because we don't believe that they're real or whatever. This is him just, he was actually kind of, he just didn't like people. No matter what, he just didn't like people. He was born in September of 1800 and had a child and upbringing accustomed to the nobility, as we've mentioned before. He had good schooling. After graduation, he had a stint in the army, which happened in 1818. And then he stayed in the army for a bit, just, uh, resigned in 1823, citing ill health, which would kind of plague him throughout most of his life. After that, he tried his hand at politics, like most other nobility, and had a brief career as a conservative member of parliament. And over time, though, he would become a renowned recluse. He acquired the title of Marquess of Titchfield after the death of his brother in 1824. He gained the title of fifth Duke of Portland on March 27th of 1854, when his father passed away. After inheriting his fortune and ancestral home and estates, particularly the one at Welbeck Abbey, he began renovations on it. Not, not a whole lot of surprise there. That's not that's kind of standard. That's not so bad. The gardens of the kitchen alone covered about 22 acres. To soak in the fact that you just said 22 acres. The garden of the kitchen. 
Oy vey. Yep. So apparently one of his renovations was to, to build a, a recessed walls uh, around it and uh, use it for fruit, which was kind of a way of ripening fruit. And there's it, it a certain name for it. And it escapes me. I didn't type it in. But one of these particular recessed walls was mainly used for peaches because they're delicious. And this particular wall for peaches alone is estimated to have been about a thousand feet in length. Yep. Thou- oh my gosh. Yep. This is getting ridiculous again. You got the money for it. But this is this is nowhere near as ridiculous as William Cavendish is going to get. Oh no. <laughs> After that, he decided he was going to create and build a massive writing house dimensions are believed to have been around 400 feet by 110 feet it is believed that it was also lit by about 4,000 gas jets but this is the mid-1800s gas is now available instead of flames and also held around a hundred horses why you would need a hundred horses i don't know it's not like he's got a family and kids Apparently, in the mid-1800s, skating had become a thing. If you're not familiar with that, go back and check out our episode on John Joseph Merlin, the inventor of roller skates. It's great. And roller skating became all the rage after there was a big patent on it and had a big kind of renaissance in the early um, to mid-1800s. But by by the 1850s, it was a big fad uh, throughout England and into America. So when roller skating took in, Right before he became a massive recluse, Lord Cavendish decided that he was going to build a skate rink next to the lake on his estate, which he would allow his staff to use whenever they wanted. So despite him doing what he's going to do, as I'll mention in just a minute, it's not like he was exceptionally rude to people. He just didn't like people, but that doesn't mean he had to be rude to them. He just didn't want to be near around or talk to anybody. But he, he was considered to be a benevolent employer. He paid well. Well, at least there's that, that he paid well. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. After these renovations, things start to get quite a little weird. He ordered all the rooms in the very large estate to be stripped of any and all furniture and any and all paintings which were going to be put into storage. You would think he might be doing renovations on the room, so he just wanted to get all the furniture out. No. He then decided, because this is the main point of this, is that he wanted to save on the bills. The room's probably got to get like 50 to 100 rooms to it. It's a, it's a large estate. So in order to save the bills, save money on the bills and the heating and everything, he said he was going to make use of only five of the rooms. All the rooms were also painted pink. Now, that might sound weird, because today, to a certain extent, the, the way the things have been throughout the 1900s, pink is for girls, blue is for boys. But in the Victorian times, pink was for boys and blue was for girls. It just somehow switched at some point. Although, it really doesn't matter what color you want anyway. Choose whatever makes you happy. All righty. I can do that. Yep. There was also something else going on in the house. It just wasn't visible to the naked eye. Increasingly becoming a recluse, increasingly becoming 
misanthropic and not and be increasingly becoming introverted he decided he did not want to just have five rooms and his estate that he wanted to use he wanted to really find a way to be away from people he did not want to be disturbed by anybody and began building what would essentially be though just not structurally be an underground castle underneath the entire estate i'd hide under there too and a tunnel system underground yeah when i really really don't like people that would be my escape <laughs> uh well you you might i told you you might like this guy let's get into it a little more according to a report he had about 15 miles of tunnels built under the estate one of the tunnels leading from the coach house to the south lodge also had domed skylights and gas lights were installed into the tunnel the tunnels the various tunnels from the main one led into numerous rooms and chambers some of which housed a great hall a gallery a library an observatory several billiard rooms and a ballroom all of which were painted pink the ballroom is believed to actually have had a hydraulic lift installed and the ceiling was painted with a giant sunset that sounds pretty yeah that's not the weirdest part about all of this though before i get into what else he did with the construction according to staff lord cavendish required that chicken be roasted in the kitchen at all times of the day chicken's delicious but i don't know about that delicious i would get sick of it so very quickly and the same type of chicken as opposed to what are they like a cornish game hen versus a no arm chicken roasted versus baked or something oh well there's so many different ways you can dress up chicken but he liked roasted chicken apparently in addition to just having chicken roasting at all manners uh, at all times throughout the day he also and 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 not wanting to interact with anybody his servants wouldn't just bring him food and knock on the door and then walk away particularly because he would be staying down in the tunnel systems they would bring food to him on heated trucks via the rails inside the tunnels that's over the top (laughs) no not quite the interesting thing about all of this underground construction again there's a great hall gallery billiard rooms an observatory library ballroom and a whole bunch of other rooms weirdest part about all of this is that he never intended to use any of these especially for social gatherings because he didn't want to be around people so why do it in the first place why build a great hall and a ballroom with a hydraulic lifted floor if you never actually intend to use it because again he's crazy yeah i suppose so he was such a recluse that even his own servants if they wanted to communicate with him had to leave him letters 
and the mailboxes that he had set up in the five rooms above ground. They weren't just for posting communication between servants. They were also just general mailboxes. So he would also use them as correspondent. There was an inbox and an outbox, essentially. And if he wanted to talk with family, if he wanted to talk business with one of his business partners, he wouldn't go and even if he, he, he did business and became independently wealthy while be hiding out in his estate. But if he needed to talk to somebody about business, he'd write them letters. They would correspond via letter only. And the letters would be left in his mailboxes. Despite all of this, he would very rarely ever venture outside the estate. Even if he ventured outside the house, say onto the grounds, and he happened to walk by one of his servants, they all had a specific, um, it's not so much they had to avoid him, but if he happened to be walking by, you had to literally avert your eyes and pretend you didn't see your Lord. There is a story that goes at one point, one of the servants, because he is your master, decided to like tip his hat, to, uh, looked at Lord Cavendish as he's packing, passing by, tipped his hat to say hello, Lord, and he was fired immediately on the spot for acknowledging Lord Cavendish. If he left the estate grounds, he would usually do it at night. And supposedly there'd be somebody, usually a woman for some reason, walking ahead of him about 40 yards with a lantern to light his path, just so that she was so far enough away, he could still see where he was going, but far enough that he had no way of actually having a human conversation with her. If he had to walk out during the day, for one reason or another, like if he had to go to uh, his business office in London, he is reported to have worn to wear two overcoats, a very tall hat, high collar, and carry a large umbrella. The last of which, the umbrella, is believed that he would use it to hide behind if anyone attempted to address him. It's also said that if he needed to go from his estate to London, to his office, he would get in his carriage, get the carriage onto a train car, get the train car off at the station, and then have it parked. And then the, the servants and everyone would have to avert their eyes while he literally ran into the building to uh, avoid people. I mean, I'm just imagining he's super pale. Probably. Ooh, I didn't think about that. Ill, ghostly, white, maybe a little translucent. <laughs> Definitely not getting enough vitamin D, that's for sure. But that would also probably uh, um, add to the, his constant ill health, which he died from uh, in London. And his place, I think, was in Hanover uh, on December 6th of 17th. On December 6th of 1879, at the age of 79. I mean, yeah, that's surprising that he lived that long with that kind of health condition. But I'm also just thinking, you know, I, I work in a warehouse. I have to take vitamin D to make sure I get enough. Gosh, I can't imagine how he physically felt 
I've had vitamin D deficiencies more than once. It really fatigues you. I think that's also a possibility of rickets, right? Because it's a bone issue. Hmm. That's, I could be wrong on that. I thought rickets had to do with bone. So it would be a vitamin D issue, not solely, but maybe a, um, a, a contributing factor. I'm not sure, but somebody correct me if I'm wrong. I could be wrong. Last on our list is one of my absolute favorites. Just in general, I just thought this was a very fascinating case. Next and last for today, we are talking about Edward Hyde, third Earl of Clarendon, also known as Lord Cornbury. Cornbury? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure where that one comes from. But you'll like this one. It's fascinating. So Lord Cornbury was born on November 28th of 1661 and was the only child of Henry, second Earl of Clarendon, and Theodosia Capel. And at only three months after being born, his mother unfortunately died of smallpox. His grandfather, Edward, first Earl, actually has a really interesting backstory. And it's just going to be very, very quick. He started life as a commoner, but very soon, and probably into his 20s, found a position as the advisor for not just Charles I, but also Charles II. And in fact, his grandfather, Edward, whom he's named after, was also very instrumental in negotiating the restoration of Charles II in 1660 due to some provisions that he put out which would be known as the Clarendon Code, which is pretty nifty for a family legacy. In addition to that, after Charles II was restored, the first Earl of Clarendon's daughter, Anne, married Charles's brother, future King James. So now they're related. And while the third Earl, Edward Hyde, Lord Cornbury, grew up, now in the nobility under the king and related to the king, he had pretty much the same as all the other ones we've just listed. His adolescence was pretty much the same. Good schooling, proper prep, career in the military. But for Lord Cornbury, he would stay in the military for quite some time. In fact, during his time in the military, he joined the Royal Regiment of Dragoons and was under the command of John Churchill, who would become the future Duke of Marlborough, who is under Queen Anne, a pretty big name, which I believe that I will have at some point an upcoming episode on John and Sarah Churchill, which is, that's, that's going to be a weird history episode all, all on its own. You don't even know where that's going to go unless you know the story behind it. And Lauren, you would love the story behind Sarah Churchill and Queen Anne. Oh, no doubt. So John Churchill and Edward would go on to serve King James as well. So to give context to this, the family worked under Charles I, Charles II, James II, and eventually also Queen Anne and William and Mary. So like they're very well tied into the royal family. And Edward and James would go, I'm sorry, Edward and John Churchill would go on to serve under James II and also help to quash the Monmouth Re- Rebellion, which was a rebellion put as a there was a, a potential heir and there was a big back and forth between James and the potential heir and obviously James won. 
Lord Cornbury would go on to rise in the ranks of the military, earning a seat in loyal parliament in 1685 and would serve various parliament seats up until 1701. He also earned the very high position of master of the horse to the king of Denmark in 1685, which I believe would be the future William of Orange. You know William of Orange, don't you, Lauren? No idea who you're talking about. Never heard of him. <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah. He, 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 he's an orange grove magnet, right? I would think so, like from his backyard, right? Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so after James II, James is, well, technically after James II, so during James II's reign, for anyone who's not familiar, uh, during James's reign, because he was, I believe, a Catholic, and they wanted Protestants back, and that, this time it was Catholic Protestant, Catholic Protestant, it was a big crazy mess. Mary, James's eldest daughter, was a Protestant who was married to William of Orange, and this is where you get the glorious revolution. So Mary took it upon herself with her new husband and dethroned her own father and took control of England. James fled to France. James had a younger daughter, Anne, who would later become Queen Anne. So after James II is ousted, William and Mary take over for some time. And during the rebellion, Lord Cornbury and John Churchill were both against William of Orange. So they were fighting against him as he was taking over, coming over to England. But at one point, they decided that they were going to defect to the side of William of Orange, probably because they were noticing that maybe he was winning the war and wanted to be on the good graces of the future king. And it's believed that when they did this, because they were such high-ranking nobles in the military, that they defected almost all of the dragoons onto the side of William of Orange, which sort of unbalanced the, 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 the military of the sides there. Now, after William and Mary successfully took over, there was a debate as to whether William should rule as king or as a consort to Mary, because technically Mary was the legal rightful heir technically even though she's a woman uh but she was the heretical heir i guess would be a better way of putting it during this time lord cornbury claimed that his cousin anne mary's younger sister should be in line for the kingship william did it like this so william eventually got the kingship and punished edward by stripping him of his post of master of the horse and removing him from the military which is a very bad thing to have done that's pretty much demoting you to that's that's stripping you of all your titles and lands in a sense not good now without an income because he's no longer in the military and with having obviously large debts because he's a noble lord cornbury tried to find work equal to his status because if you're a noble you can't just go off and find any old work you have to find very particular types of work and sometimes that can be a little hard i suppose so from 1690 to 1698, he struggled to find adequate work, but continued to be a member of parliament. Now, I don't know if this time that members of parliament were, had to pay dues or were also in addition getting paid for their job, because I think at one point members of parliament weren't getting paid or nowhere near enough that it was considered to be an actual job. But eventually he got on William's good side and was able to acquire a retainer of 10 pounds per week, which at that time was quite a big sum. And in the spring of 1701, William appointed him the governor of New York, which at this time, this is the early 1700s, it'd be another 
75 years until the revolution. So New York was still governed by England for quite some time after this. Now, before Lord Cornbury could be officially anointed as governor of New York, William died and his cousin, Anne, became queen. And having still supported Anne, sort of under the rug, if you will, even uh, getting in the good graces of William of Orange, Anne supported him and paid off some of his debts. She would reward him very generously. He was very close with Anne, but probably also knew her growing up. So now he began his tenure as New York's governor on May 3rd of 1702 and was welcomed by the nobility who were living there because he was also one of them. He was also at one point appointed captain general of all forces by sea and land for all colonies north of Virginia. And I believe at one point he was governor of New Jersey, too. And he would serve in this post for the following six years until 1708. However, he was not a good governor. Very corrupt. During this time, he ran up massive debts. And as 1708 ended and his tenure ended as as governor, he was arrested for his debts and was put into debtor's prison, which is not a good sign for your previous governor. He was quote unquote rescued from debtor's prison in 1709 when he gained his title after his father died because there was a thing at that time that said that lords cannot be jailed and held responsible for anything they do or something along those lines. It's really weird. And this would actually give him parliamentary immunity because he's a noble. So he decided he was gonna leave America and move back to England where he was still in the good graces of Queen Anne and would go to her court and she gave him a pension and also one of her royal palaces at Somerset House, which is a really big deal. I mean, kings and queens don't just randomly give off royal houses. Edward would also become an emissary for the future King George I because Queen Anne died childless and they needed another Protestant. There was a law passed by this point that uh, future kings and queens had to be Protestant. So there wasn't any official heir. So they brought in the Hanoverian, what would become the Hanoverian dynasty with King George I. And he made his way into England. And in the latter months of 1714, Lord Cornbury would frequently dine with Queen Anne and future King George until Anne's death later that November. So that's pretty cool, just in terms of not only are you dining with the current queen because she's a friend of yours and your cousin, and now you're also dining with the future king. Pretty high high steps right there. However, um, after George I took over, he fired Lord Cornbury from his emissary positions because of embezzlement and other corruptions. According to author Shelley Ross, Cornbury was corrupt and his conduct helped to start the American Revolution and that the framers of the Constitution had Lord Cornbury specifically in mind when they wrote the articles of impeachment. Impeachment. For the president. Sweet. Lord Cornbury was so corrupt and was a terrible governor of New York when the founding fathers 75 years later give or take started to write up laws of the land 
they had Lauren Cornbury in mind when they wrote up articles of impeachment. That's not good. <laughs> but that's, that's one way to make your market history, I suppose. I was going to say, that's not the thing I'd want to be remembered for. That's really not what he's actually remembered for. Because this is a list of eccentric English lords, and that's not eccentric. That's just corruption. It's, it is also a thing he's remembered for, though. Oh, yes, but not by many. That's true. That's still not something I'd want to have in my history. No. Now, obviously, despite all of that history, as we just remembered, he, uh, as we just mentioned, Lord Cornbury, Edward Hyde, third Earl of Clarendon, is mostly remembered for a particular eccentricity, cross-dressing. Lovely. Mm-hmm. According to Ross in her book, he allegedly opened the 1702 New York Assembly in drag. He wore a hooped gown with elaborate headdresses and carried a fan much in the fashionable style of Queen Anne. There are paintings. I'll get to those in a minute. Okay, because now I'm interested in seeing <laughs> I'm not done. According to author Patricia bon- Bonomi, his transvestite fetish, if he had one, and the guilt and psychological distress it caused might have found an outlet in his alleged rages. She speculates that this fetish might have intensified after his wife's death, emboldening him to attempt to pass as a woman in public. Bonamy believes that Lord Cornbury was actually not a crossdresser, but that it was actually invented by his political opponents to smear him. Mind you, he didn't have to be a crossdresser to get that kind of negative publicity anyway. But yeah, there is there is two kind of thoughts on this, whether he was a crossdresser or was not a crossdresser. If he was a crossdresser, now he is pretty high nobility. So technically you could throw him in jail for crossdressing. But on the other hand, I don't know, maybe he could get in fine for it. Um, but that's mostly what he's remembered for. And I said that there were paintings. Now, there are no contemporary paintings of Lord Cornbury from the 16, late 1600s into the 1700s. However, there is a painting from the 18th century that hangs at the New York Historical Society that has very long been believed to be a painting of Lord Cornbury. Lauren, while you're on your phone, why don't you go ahead and look it up? Okay. Lord Cornbury specific painting? Lord Cornbury painting. It should be, there's nothing else except this painting that pops up. An unusual painting, to be sure. Well, it looks like they superimposed a different head onto the body. There's two paintings that both resemble that same person. So that's the one the New York Historical Society and the Dallas Museum of Art. There is also a portrait dating from about the same time frame, which is both paintings are believed to have been painted sometime between 1705 in 1750 so if it was not painted during his lifetime it was painted soon posthumously that is the other one yeah two different paintings same face unknown person still looks superimposed on the body like the head looks too big for the rest of the body some people have big heads yeah but it does look superimposed even though it's not because of technology 
But if you look at both pictures from the New York Historical Society, as Lauren just did, and the Dallas Museum of Art, you'll see they are two different paintings, but have very similar features to them. And it's pretty much two slightly different paintings of the same person. Edward died in 1720. So as I mentioned, if both paintings are of him in drag, they are likely more, they're more likely to be posthumous than necessarily painted during his lifetime. However, because of whether or not he was a cross-dresser, whether or not it was fabricated that he was by his political opponents to smear him and get him out of office, it's an eccentricity, true or not, that has been passed down over the centuries and has piqued people's interest. So there's a play by Robert Hunter who actually took over governor after Lord Cornbury and uh, governed New York from 1710 to 1719. And in this play particularly, which is before Lord Cornbury died, and he would have known Lord Cornbury because he was his predecessor. In the play specifically, it depicts Lord Cornbury as Lord Arnobaros, which means heavy with wine, and has cross-dressing as its central theme. This was written in the early 17-teens into the 1720s. Quite a long time. Yeah. And I believe the play has been revived a handful of times over the centuries. Well, at least particularly during the 1900s. What an interesting time for that play to be revived. What an interesting thing to have someone so close to the queen likely be a cross-dresser, like to go around and drag. See, that honestly doesn't surprise me because back in those times, people had to hide. What was he hiding? Well, a lot of people were not as open about cross-dressing or any of that stuff back in the day. Well, yes, because women could not dress as men. But I don't know that there was anything that said men couldn't dress as women. You couldn't be homosexual. You get jailed for that. Yeah. I don't know. I just think it's interesting. It is interesting. One theory actually went that the reason he cross-dressed, which would have been after his wife died, is that he missed her so much he wanted to kind of keep her spirit alive by dressing like her. That's an understatement. That's more than a little weird. Definitely on the creepier side of things. But that would be the last on our list, and that's everything I've got on today's episode. Sweet. That oh, was enjoy that. <laughs> I certainly did. I love crazy people. A lot of freaking weird people. Um, you have no idea. Oh, I don't. I just know that there's a lot of people out there that are weird. I mean, we're oddballs, but they're just creepy weird. Their history is full of eccentrics, and I've got a very long list. Yeah, of course you do. You're Melissa. Yeah, I know. I expect nothing less. Fantastic. Like, hello? Has anyone else <laughs> met you? Um, I run the word history. It's all eccentric. So, that'll do for this episode of History Explains It All. And we hope to see you next week as we check through history to explain it all. Bye-bye. Bye.